to Leadership Reflections, a collection of leadership podcasts by me, Barry Dorr. We continue our exploration of Lead Like Mary today by examining Mary's fourth trait, which focuses on, focuses on relationships and trust. You remember the Inside Out Leadership Model and the Mary's Character Model. This is the final one of Mary's character traits, those that lie deep inside her, inside their inner circle, and really define who she is. Let me begin with two quotes. First, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Trust people and they will be true to you. Trust them greatly and they will prove themselves great. Again, trust people and they will be true to you. Trust them greatly and they will prove themselves great. And from Stephen Covey. Long-term, highly effective relationships require mutual respect and mutual benefit. Long-term, highly effective relationships require mutual respect and mutual benefit. So we're first going to examine trust and then relationships. In terms of trust, in my view, it's the heart of everything. The two are absolutely intertwined, of course. It's the heart, totally interlinked. It's the heart of great relationships. Where trust is high, things just prosper. The relationship is functional, not dysfunctional. Things get done. There is actually some real evidence of the speed of trust. When trust is high, you don't need to be checking up on things the other, all the time. You trust your team to do things. You trust the other party you're dealing with. You trust your partner. And things just can move forward. Where trust doesn't exist, where it's fractured, we know how that can slow things down with all that checking. And then we'll look at relationships. To me, building great relationships everywhere is essential if progress is to be made in our lives, inside and outside work. And indeed, as I said before, the two are completely interlinked. If you were to think of your most meaningful and rewarding relationships, they could be anywhere. It could be with your partner, a child, a friend, a colleague at work. It could be your boss. It could be as a whole, with your team as a whole. It isn't just about one-to-one. It could be the levels of trust that exist in a team. And if you think about those most rewarding and meaningful relationships you have at the moment... And if I asked you for words that define those most special relationships, I'm certain trust will be right at the top. It goes without saying that Mary is completely trustworthy. She knows this is essential. Indeed, it's one of her deepest, most important values. We talked about values last time. and Trustworthiness lies at her heart. She knows that unless she can prove herself trustworthy, how can she expect anybody to trust her? She demonstrates it in so many ways. She doesn't talk about people behind their backs. She's consistent with people. If she says she's going to do something, she does it. She gives them the space to get on with things. She really demonstrates all the time how trustworthy she is in herself. But, and this is crucial, she's also willing to trust others. She knows it's through this she'll get the best out of others. So with her team, with her boss, with colleagues... 
outside work of course as well but inside work with other parties she's dealing with maybe partners and other organizations suppliers etc her first instinct is always to trust if you think of the card player who keeps their cards so close to their chest and doesn't trust anybody if mary was to do that things just couldn't move forward they would be slow they would grind to a halt she's just just, just the opposite She's willing to expand trust, to show a few cards, even if she doesn't know at first that that um, trust is going to be justified. You might say there's a real danger in that, but just remember, there is nothing remotely soft about Mary. This is not a blank check. If that trust is abused in any shape and form, Mary will close down immediately. And it's this willingness to trust that forms the basis of her building long-term, highly effective, highly mutually beneficial relationships. For the examination of relationships today, let's revisit Stephen Covey's seven habits. You remember maybe in the personal effectiveness podcast, we looked at the first, first three habits. We looked at be proactive, begin with the end in mind, and put first things first. We also looked at the final habit, sharpen the saw. Be proactive, the habit of always understanding we have a choice. Begin with the end in mind, the habit of setting really clear goals at every level from the next meeting through big projects, organisational visions, right through to the basis of a life plan. And put first things first, the time management habit with those four quadrants of urgency and importance. That absolute need to focus on the truly important and to be as effective as possible that way. And sharpen the saw, that habit of always, always, always renewing ourselves in body, heart, mind and spirit. So those thought were the habits of the private victory. They lie deep within the inner circle of inside-out leadership. The remaining habits, four to six, four, five and six, form the public victory. This is when we work effectively with others, where we build those relationships. So this is Mary pushing out from the inner circle into the middle circle of inside-out leadership. And I'd love to talk more in a few minutes about relationships. First, however, I'd just like to chat briefly about something you might find a little depressing. Sorry if you do, but I'd like you to think about your bank account. That's your real bank account, your current account, the one you have at Barclays or NetWest or Santander or wherever. Think of what the two transactions that normally happen through that bank account. I reckon you'll probably tell me that it's money goes in and money comes out. We make deposits and we take withdrawals. Have a think for a moment. What happens if the withdrawals you take from your real bank account significantly exceed the deposits? I reckon over time your account will go overdrawn. Maybe it'll mean you can't meet your commitments. Maybe it can affect your creditworthiness elsewhere. It may only even cost you things. You might get nasty letters from the bank manager. Ultimately, Let's not go down this route, but it could involve, ultimately, bankruptcy. And there's the emotional stuff that goes with that. So many arguments happen because of money. Unhappiness, stress, tension, as I said, arguments. A bit depressing. Let's move away from that. Why is that relevant? Well, in exactly the same way as you have a bank account at NatWest, Santander or Barclays or wherever, we also have one with every other person with whom we have a relationship In fact, there are two at play. You have one with them, and they have one with you. And in exactly the same as you can do with a real bank account, 
you can place deposits into the bank accounts of other people and you can take withdrawals. You can place deposits and you can take withdrawals. Covey calls this the emotional bank account. It's quite a powerful thing to think about when you think about relationships. So what deposits could you place into the bank accounts of those other people? Many and varied. Depends who the relationship is. Because remember, this may be inside or outside work. But I'm guessing we could help others. Listen to them. Support them. Teach them. Nurture them. Depending on the relationship, love them. Protect them. Honour them. We could really want them to succeed. We could praise them. We could recognise them. We could give them responsibility. We could encourage them. We could make sure they're learning new things. We could also, and I think it's a deposit, hold them accountable when they say they're going to do something, providing we've done our own part of the deal as well by being jointly accountable. And I reckon they're all deposits we can make. And obviously we can also take withdrawals. We can take withdrawals from the bank accounts of those other people from their emotional bank accounts. And I could ask you for those withdrawals and you start with a contra list like not teaching, not helping, not nurturing, not developing, not praising, not recognising. You might come up with some more. Then I can ask you what would happen if the withdrawals you take from the other person's bank account significantly exceed the deposits. Remember the words that you thought we thought of when we talked about your real bank account? I reckon the same words could even apply without trying to be too clever. I reckon that account could go overdrawn could lead to arguments and tension and stress. It could mean you couldn't meet your commitments to others. You might get nasty letters. I guess also that um, it might affect your creditworthiness elsewhere. Look at the way they treat their friend and wouldn't like to be their friend. Look at the way they treat their work colleague and wouldn't like to work with them or for them. You get the picture. So I think it absolutely is relevant and as relevant, those words. And ultimately... I guess it's true that that relationship could become bankrupt. So I'd love you to think about in the next few days all your relationships. Imagine deposits on one side and withdrawals on the other in a continuum. One far end of the continuum will be those relationships really high in deposit. They are the ones which are flourishing. Coming down towards the middle of the continuum, the relationships would still be in credit, but then you come to a nil balance. And then those relationships slip into overdraft, right up to the extent where relationships might be fractured and broken. And I'd love you to think about the spectrum of your relationships inside and outside work in exactly that way. Place them on the continuum. Which are the ones that are really flourishing? Which are the ones which are doing okay? Which are the ones which have slipped into overdraft? And what could you do through consistent deposits to start to place deposits into some of the bank accounts of some other people and repair restore the sum of those relationships and those relationships which are already moving really well what about ensuring they're even more valuable even more functional relationships by even more focus on deposits now you might say that's all very well but it's a two-way street because if they've got a bank account with me as much as I've got one with them and as much as I might try to make deposits into their bank account you should see the withdrawals they're taking from me I absolutely get that, but it's got to start somewhere. And maybe, if you were to begin to make regular deposits into the bank accounts of those other people, just possibly, over time, you might start to get some deposits back. Here's the thing. If you don't, I would seriously challenge the validity of that relationship continuing. Now, those are tough words because we are locked into so many relationships inside and outside 
but I don't think that makes the principle wrong. So the emotional bank account from Covey is a powerful tool. Think about the spectrum of your relationships. Covey's fourth habit is think win-win. This is the habit of mutual benefit. What Covey argues is that in any interaction between human beings, it's possible to approach that interaction with a mindset, thinking, one of five interactions. Win-win, five approaches, sorry. Win-win, win-lose, lose-win, lose-lose and win. And it sounds a bit confusing just using those words at the moment. Let's leave win-win for a second aside. If you approach an interaction with a mindset of win-lose, re- this is a really competitive approach. You're really looking to win. But you're looking for the other party to lose. You're trying to ensure you win, but you're trying to ensure the other party loses. Is that a way to build meaningful long-term relationships? I suspect no. Equally, lose-win, if we approach it with a lose-win mentality. Frankly, we expect to lose, and we expect the other party to win, because that's what always happens. So, I need a pay rise. I'll go and see my boss, but there's absolutely no point, because I won't get one, I'll probably get some more work. That would be a lose-win mentality. If we have a lose-lose mentality, this is quite um, defeatist and vindictive. If I'm going down, I'm sure you're coming down with me. I can't go where I want to go on holiday, I'll make sure my partner go to where, can't go to where they want to go either. Really defeatist and vindictive in equal measures. And a win mentality on its own might sound alright in certain circumstances. That's where we want to win and we're not bothered what happens to the other parties. We're not being vindictive, but neither are we thinking of them. What Covey argues is if we want to build long-term, highly effective relationships, really having a win-win mentality... Thinking win-win is absolutely crucial. How can I create a win here? How can I ensure that um, I get out of it what I want? But equally, what can I do to make sure the other party wins as well? How can I create a win-win outcome from this particular interaction? How can I make sure I win, but that they win as well? But here's the point. It has to be a genuine desire. This is, not a work, this is not an excuse for hoodwinking people. This is not an excuse for saying, I want to win, and I'm going to pretend I'm creating a win for the other person, but really, my men, I'm not going to. I'm going to trick them. Because frankly, that's win-lose or maybe win. So when we really think deeply win-win, we're genuine. It comes from deep inside us. It's deeply rooted in our beliefs. We want, we want to win. We want the other party to win as well. And we know it's through that we'll make progress because we'll make it together. We'll build great relationships. And this remember, this applies outside work with a partner, with a child, with a friend, inside work with a partner organisation, with our team members, with other departments, with colleagues, with our boss. How can I win but create a win for the other party as well? So what does it take to think win-win? I think it takes loads of stuff. It takes the belief, the self-belief that we can do it and the belief that it's the right thing to do. It takes genuineness. It takes energy and time because these things don't come around quickly. They have to be worked at. It takes, as I said before, a belief that it's possible and energy. And yeah, it does take time. It also takes the ability to have an open mind, to be creative, to be innovative. If we've got a closed mind, we're not even going to look for a win-win outcome because we always think we're right. 
If we're not creative, we won't explore. And we need to do that through understanding the other party, which links so closely to the fifth habit of seek first to understand in a minute. But we need to be creative to come up with the best possible win-win outcomes. Maybe something we hadn't even thought of to start with. But I do guarantee you, it takes a lot, but it's absolutely worth it. And it's called think win-win. That's the habit. Because we cannot guarantee win-win outcomes. What we can also guarantee is that we can we can always guarantee we can think win-win. I reckon I'm preaching to the converted here to a large extent. I reckon in your lives outside and work and inside work, you might not have called it win-win thinking, think win-win. But I reckon you strive for it all the time or most of the time because you know that's how we build long-term, highly effective relationships. That's how we get great, sustainable results and build a better tomorrow. But here's your challenge. Could you do even more of it? Are there some circumstances, some situations which at the moment could just do with a massive dose of win-win thinking. Have a think about it in the next few days. Is compromise a form of win-win, you ask? Well, maybe you didn't, but I'm going to ask for you. Well, I think we're too quick, simply too quick to compromise. I think compromise is sometimes a low form of win-win. But I think there are always better things ahead. So don't always go straight to compromise, where you. because I think when we compromise, at worst, we're giving something away. Always strive for a win-win outcome, which is better than merely compromising. Compromise could be a low form of win-win, but it might not be. And I absolutely commend to you that there is always something better. Coffee's fifth habit is called Seek First to Understand. The principle which underpins this habit is, sounds a bit strange at first, but it says diagnose before prescribing. Always diagnose before prescribing. Think about it. It's obvious, isn't it? If you go to the doctor, you would much rather they diagnosed you and gave you the right medicine rather than handing you a pack of tablets the second you walk through the door. If you go to the opticians, I reckon you want an eye test and a try on some glasses rather than handed the first pair. Pretty obvious stuff. But how often in our day-to-day lives... Do we fail to understand before we simply, do we fail to diagnose before we simply prescribe a solution? Seek first to understand. How do we gain that understanding? Well, we gain it through listening. This is the listening habit. And you know, I reckon that listening is probably the least developed of our senses. Have a think about it. How effective are you at listening? How often, even when we're attentively listening, if we're really trying, do we fall into the trap when the other person pauses of going straight into that gap like a rat up a drainpipe? We just want to tell them what to do to give them the answer. Because we know the answer and if only they shut up, we tell them. We've already made up our mind. We're looking at things from our point of reference, not the other person. We're listening for the right to reply. Now, there are circumstances when it's entirely appropriate to simply give them a quick answer. I want the toilet. I sense you're uncomfortable. It's probably unnecessary. I reckon very, very quickly say to them, his second one left works for me. But I reckon there are many instances when we need to truly listen to understand and not fall into the trap of always thinking of stuff from our point of view. Because there is an absolutely ultimate level of listening and it's called empathic listening. And it lies well above attentive listening. Because when we're attentively listening, we are listening for the right to reply. We're listening from our own turn of refer- frame of reference. However, when we move to empathic listening, 
Now we are really, really listening truly to understand. We want to understand. We're listening from the other person's frame of reference. And it's appropriate, I think, in a listening situation where there's emotion, where two factors are at play. One, where emotion is involved. Or two, when what we're being told is very complex. So to me, the trick when you're attentively, uh, empathically listening, some of the things you can do is really focus. Don't fall into the trap of really trying to fill every gap and to respond. Let silence reign. It's very powerful. Play back some of the words the other person said or play back their feelings. Eventually, you'll need to stop and move to a solution if they want one. Maybe they just want to offload on you. But don't rush into it. Do everything you can to get into the mind of the other person. To move out of your own mindset into theirs. And to really listen for understanding. There's loads around on empathic listening. If you were to Google it, as you could know with any of these seven habits, you'll find a load about it. Counselors are trained in how to empathically listen. So I do recommend to you, because I reckon out there at the moment, is somebody who just needs a damn good listening from you. Coffee's sixth habit, the final one we're looking at, is synergize. Synergize. He describes this as the fruit of his seven habits. He believes all the other habits build towards this. Synergize means no more than the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. I'm not going to spend long on this because I think you can uh, work this out for yourself. But if you were to think about the best team you've ever been involved in, and this brings us back to this thing about trust as well we talked about earlier, the best team you've ever been involved in, the most rewarding relationships you've ever had, I reckon that um, they really do prosper. They really do amazing things. And although there are talented individuals in that team or in that partnership, this could be two people or a crowd of people, a group of people, I reckon the most rewarding relationships you've ever been involved in, the most rewarding teams you've ever been part of, the whole really becomes become greater than the sum of the parts. As much as each individual can achieve stuff by themselves, what that team can achieve together is quite extraordinary. And that's called synergy. It doesn't happen often. It's quite difficult to um, explain this sometimes. But you'll just feel it. Think of the best team you've ever been part of, or the best partnership you've ever been part of. Think how the whole becomes greater than the sum of the parts, and how much you achieve together. That's the fruit of Covey's habits. It's because people are well cemented in the strength of the private victory habits one, two, three, and seven. It's because they're thinking win-win and listening for understanding. When all that comes together, magic starts to happen. Magic dust is spread. And quite amazing teams develop. So that's the habit of synergy. So remember again, with these seven habits we've looked at over two podcasts, these are the habits of the private and public victories. Stephen Covey's work on the seven habits of highly effective people. I do commend them to you as a long-term framework of personal effectiveness and effectiveness with others. So get the book by all means, have a look. But Google the seven habits and you will find everything you could ever want. Summaries, videos, audios, models, frameworks, whatever you want. But I do commend them to you. So in these uh, two podca- in these last four podcasts, we've now looked at each of the four parts of the inner circle for Mary, her character traits. And next time we talk about Mary in a Leadership Reflections podcast, we'll be going on to broaden out to look at how she then works effectively with others, what she does. And next one, we'll be looking at right people on the bus. Next time, however, next podcast, before Christmas, I'm taking a break from Lead Like Mary to bring you a special Christmas story. A 
hope you'll enjoy that. This podcast has been part of Leadership Reflections, a collection of leadership podcasts by me, Barry Dorr. Thank you so much, and I'll see you very soon.